Hi, this is Ron Coleman uh, speaking to you from the International Trademark Association. I'm a partner at Archer and Griner, and very honored to appear on IP Fridays. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 63 of IP Fridays. Today's interview guest is Ron Coleman, who talks with us about the famous Slants case. But before we jump into this exciting interview, I have something to tell you about uh, Michelle K. Lee, the Undersecretary of Commerce for Intellectual Property and Director of the USPTO, who just made a statement before the Subcommittee on Courts and Intellectual Property and the Internet Committee on the Judiciary of the U.S. House of Representatives. Basically, Michelle Lee gave a very good overview of the current activities at the USPTO and had some interesting numbers uh, to talk about. So for uh, patents, the first action pendency has been reduced from 25.9 months in January 2009 to 16.1 months in July 2016. And the total pendency has fallen from 33.8 months in January 2009 to 25.6 months in July 2016. The goal is to reduce the overall pendency of patent applications to 20.6 months in 2019. As for trademarks, the average time for the first action has been maintained um, in a range of 2.5 to 3.5 months from filing and the time from uh, filing to abandonment or notice of allowance has been maintained at about 9.8 months. One interesting fact is that the USPTO now has 6,000 full-time teleworkers saving about 38 million dollars in rent. If you want to read the full statement of Michelle Lee, you can head over to the USPTO website at www.uspto.gov and go to the news and updates section. Now, let's jump into the interview with Ron Coleman. Ralph, I am pleased to be joined today by Ron Coleman, a partner and seasoned litigator with the law firm Archer & Griner PC, which has offices in New Jersey and New York. According to his law firm biography, Ron has shaped the law relating to the use and abuse of intellectual property as a tool of competition. A leader in social media for lawyers, his blog about copyright, trademark, and free speech, Likelihood of Confusion, has become a prominent and trusted source for IP law since its debut in 2005. Ron has recently been in the press with his representation of the slants in In Re Tam, a case that everyone is watching in the world of IP. Not only has he drawn attention in the slants case, but he has represented a long line of bloggers in his legal practice. Ron is a graduate of Princeton University and the Northwestern University School of Law. Welcome, Ron, to IP Fridays. Thank you, Ken. Ron, let's dive right into the slants case. 
Uh, many of our listeners are not in the United States. Can you give us a brief rundown on this case and the importance of the case in intellectual property law? In essence, what's at stake here? Well, uh, th this case involves a particular provision in the U.S. trademark statute, which prohibits the registration of certain categories of trademarks. Mm-hmm. Uh, these include obscene trademarks, scandalous trademarks, and these are very actually. This aspect of the of the of the mark of the statute is probably not all that strange, especially to our overseas listeners, because in most countries there is a, a regulation over the sorts of things that can be registered as a trademark. Um, what we what is peculiar perhaps here is that the United States has this um, something called the First Amendment which is a very broad protection of free speech that has been applied to a number of <clears throat> aspects of how the government goes about doing its job, as not only in terms of how what people can say and publish and do in their private spheres and in the public sphere, but also in terms of what sort of benefits the government can make conditional on uh, expression. Mm-hmm. Now, among the things that – among the types of trademarks that are prohibited from being registered under the Lanham Act, under Section 2A of the Lanham Act, are trademarks that disparage that – that may disparage persons. Okay. May disparage persons. Now, these are very broad terms, um, and the Lanham Act actually describes persons uh, in the way that we normally would as lawyers expect persons to be described, which is as natural persons, people like you and me, um, uh, and corporate persons. Anyone, anyone who's capable of suing or being sued is a person. But uh, in the late, uh, at the very end of the 20th century, an attack on the registration of the Redskins, the Washington Redskins football team trademark um, was undertaken. And although that original attack was not successful, um, the, the precedent that was established in the litigation that disparagement of persons could be applied to categories of persons such as ethnic groups um, has been widely accepted by the courts. Um, the most famous application of the Section 2A of the Lanham Act continues to be the uh, ongoing litigation involving the Washington Redskins trademark, which was subsequently um, attacked in, in a new proceeding that began a few years um, after resolution of the first one. And that is of great importance in the trademark world because the PTO ruled that going back in, into the relevant time periods, which is a, a number of years in the 70s and, and 80s and I think as late as 1994, um, the word Redskins was, based on the evidence the PTO had in front of it, deemed to be uh, disparaging to, mm -hmm. uh, to uh, American Indians or, or Native Americans. Um, besides being a shocking result in terms of but actually it wasn't shocking because in, in and of itself because by the time the by the time the 
Redskins case was decided, there had actually been a number of of uh, appeals within the TTAB and, and also appeals from the TTAB, uh, the Trademark Trials and Appeal Board, which is part of the PTO, that upheld the idea that the statute no one actually challenged whether or not the statute could be used could could, could be used for that reason. It was accepted um, that, that it was an appropriate use of the statute, and a number of trademarks had been rejected. Some of them are rather high profile. What began then was was uh, the PTO sort of began to take on this gatekeeping function of ethnic slurs and perceived ethnic slurs. There also began a movement at that time, however among a number of lawyers and academics and others who began to wonder whether or not there was some free speech issue implicated by all this. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, there is a principle in American constitutional law that the government may not condition the recipient of certain kinds of benefits um, on expression-based based on, on what we call viewpoint discrimination. And ultimately, um, what happened in the Slants case was that while everyone was paying attention to the Redskins case, we got involved with the Slants, which is a um, an, an Asian-American rock group out on the West Coast. They, actually the Northwest and Washington State, who were rejected or rather refused uh, a, a registration of their the name of their band, which is The Slants. Now, not too many people my age or your age uh, necessarily are aware of that slant is a derogative or once was a derogative term for Asian Americans, but evidently some people were. Um, and the PTO said that even though even though you, Simon Tam, are yourself Asian, enough people would be offended by this use of the trademark for a band of Asian American um, rock and roll guys um, that under Section 2A, we are refusing registration. Uh, We then appealed. We appealed on a number of grounds. Um, We preserved our right to to appeal on the First Amendment ground, but we were not particularly hopeful on that score because... The um, precedent was pretty clear that there was no First Amendment right, um, or so it seemed, um, to a trademark registration. By the time we got to the Federal Circuit, the Federal Circuit agreed with us in saying that, uh, you know, you're pretty much uh, between a rock and a hard place. The law is what it is. Um, we th- we agree with the PTO that this is disparaging, <clears throat> and we might be interested in that First Amendment ag- argument that you tucked away in your brief to preserve your rights. But what can we do? The um, the precedent in this circuit prohibits us, as a panel of three judges, from revisiting the issue. Um, and there was a very odd uh, sort of. Um, appendix to that decision, something that that I had never in 25 years of law practice ever seen before, which was not a dissent because it was written by the judge who had written the original opinion, but something called additional thoughts. Uh, And additional the additional thoughts were, (coughs) excuse me, you know, there really is something to this First Amendment uh, argument, perhaps, 
the only way we could possibly consider it would be if um, the court would take it up on bank, which means, of course, that all all the members of the circuit court of appeals would vote on, would would hear it and consider it. Such a panel would have the authority to overturn the president that says there's no First Amendment right to a trademark registration. Um, circumstances have changed. The law, the 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 constitutional law has changed since that precedent was decided, and the way the Lanham Act works in terms of funding has changed. So there was some thought that perhaps that would be relevant. But unless we give an, an on-bank consideration of the matter, we're powerless. So obviously we took this as a signal to begin the process of seeking on-bank review. Mm-hmm. Little did we know that before we had a chance to get very far into that process, the judges of that circuit on their own initiative, or as they say in Latin, sua sponte, um, took a vote and decided to vacate that opinion and to hear the case on bank on the on the sole question of whether or not the First Amendment is violated by the non-disparagement bar to registration of trademarks. They gave us, if I remember correctly, two weeks to get that brief done. Was it two weeks? It seemed like a very short amount of time. I can imagine. <laughs> maybe it was six weeks. Um, um, maybe it was six weeks. But um, the race was on. I think it was six weeks, actually. They gave us time to, to put together just one brief on this narrow issue. And luckily for me, I was uh, in a, a firm that had and has a, a, among its partners a great, experienced appellate First Amendment lawyer in the person of John Connell. And uh, he hunkered down with, with me and, and Joel McMull, who had uh, just joined me here at Archer and Griner from our previous firm in New York. And uh, we put together the brief that the Federal Circuit was uh, quite clearly asking for. And um, it became quite a cause celeb because everyone realized that if we were to win this appeal, um, this would invalidate. People were not all that concerned about the slants, unfortunately, for my client. Yes. In, the, in of themselves, but they were very interested in how this would affect the Redskins case. Oh, of course. Uh, and in fact, um, it did. It, it did. It did affect it um, because we uh, <clears throat> we got the ACLU on our side, as as Amicus Curie, a number of other Amici filed, the NFL filed in support of us as well, and um, we ultimately won. <clears throat> On December 22nd, a decision came down of 2015. The decision came down from the Federal Circuit, um, and it said that the statute is unconstitutional as applied to disparagement, uh, barring barring registration of trademarks because their disparaging is a violation of free speech under the U.S. Constitution, and they invalidated that clause. And um, the government in the spring filed a a petition for certiorari to the United States Supreme Court, and um, we're waiting to see what happens next. When do you think we'll hear further from the Supreme Court? Is this something we'll hear next year, and if so, what month? 
Um, actually, my understanding is that it's very likely that we will get a decision on the cert petition after the um, what they call the the October conference. Okay. So sometime this fall, uh, we'll know whether or not we're, we're on. Um, it's kind of a, an interesting concept for, uh, from a, you know an American law point of view. Uh, your listeners might not appreciate the fact that the federal, although the federal circuit is the reviewing circuit for the Patent and Trademark Office under normal circumstances, all things being equal, um, someone who has a trademark who wants to appeal from a TTAB decision does not have to appeal to the federal circuit. They can actually bring a, a district court action in an appropriate district, depending on the, the you know the rules for for venue in the in in, in the U.S. courts, <clears throat> and have a de novo determination of the question. Um, what that means is that the federal, although the federal circuit invalidated the statute, in theory, another circuit. Doesn't there are there are how many circuits are there? In addition to the the eleven circuits, twelve circuits, we we have the um, the DC circuit, and we have the federal circuit. The point is we have a good fifteen or you know how many many circuits there right, are. I don't right. have to count that high because I I practice mostly in the second and the third. Of course, uh, occasionally I yeah you know, I've been found in the ninth. But bottom line is another. Circuit doesn't necessarily have to agree with the federal circuit. So what happens when a circuit court invalidates a United States statute? If the Supreme Court denies cert, if they decide not to hear the appeal, then it would seem to be good law, but it isn't necessarily controlling on other circuits. So that is one reason why we we did not oppose review by the Supreme Court because, in fact, we, we said that we welcomed it because, we first of all, we think it will agree with the Federal Circuit. And secondly, true resolution of the issue really will require, ultimately, some word from the Supreme Court. Yes. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Now, how did the slants find you? I mean, you're you're in New York and New Jersey. Yeah. And they're out on the West Coast. Tell us the history there of the relationship. Well, I got interested. You know, I you mentioned... Uh, by, by the way, is there anything you read, Ken, you've known me for many years. Right. Anything you read from that law firm biography that you were careful to uh, source, that, that you find questionable, or do you adopt it as a description of, of, of my background and, and, uh, and achievements? Oh, oh, well, I adopt it, of course. <laughs> I read it, and I, I said, according to your law firm biography. Right, I'm asking you, though, can we have the conversation as on the stipulation that that what's in there is true? Because sure. it is true that I have a blog, yeah. and a, a few people do read it. And among those who read it was the lawyer for the slants, who had received an office action in connection with his original application. I see. I see. And he got one look at this office action, and he said, you know, there's a guy out in the time I was in I was in New York, a guy out in New York who has been several years writing about the Redskins case, he seems to be very engaged and interested in it. Maybe he'll do this for you pro bono. He seems like that kind of sucker. Um, but this is just more than I'm, you know, I, 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 not, you know, you guys can't afford more of what we're doing of, of this, and it, it could be a very long road. Uh, he called me up and had the conversation with me, and it seemed to me, I, I actually thought I had a pretty good strategy for getting the registration 
without implicating Section 2A at all. I wasn't interested in, you know, knocking over any um, <clears throat> sacred cows. I wanted to get the client the registration. Mm-hmm. It didn't go that way. Uh, Destiny, it seemed, had other plans for the slants. Sure. Now, I understand that the TTAB is, uh, or the USPTO is suspending action on prosecution of marks that may be affected by this decision, and I believe there's some other pending pending uh, cases out there as well. How do you think the USPTO will react in the event that you are victorious for your client, and, and what are the likely changes in office procedures that from from your standpoint? Well, that's a, you know, I really have to tell you that predicting how the PTO will react is a, definitely a business that I would not want to get into because okay. I would have thought that after a decision of the Federal Circuit um, on a direct appeal from the TTAB in which the TTAB is remanded back the case and told to, to um, uh, you know, the case is remanded for further proceedings consistent with the opinion mm-hmm. that I would be a person with a trademark registration in his hands. But uh, the PTO decided on its own that it doesn't have to obey that court order because the United States Supreme Court had not yet weighed in on it. Um, we tried to get the Federal Circuit interested in that argument, um, and they didn't. I think they felt they'd done enough to, mm-hmm. <laughs> enough for us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> basically, the, the world. They said it basically, the message was the world is not going to come to an end if you don't have your registration right now. So you know, let's. Let's see what happens. So the PTO's p- official position seems to be that unless cert, if if cert is denied, my what I read from their position is that if the cert if cert is denied, then they will consider the issue as having been, f- you know, fully, you know, all, all their all their appeal. Um, Options will have been exhausted, mm-hmm. and they have to comply. I mean, they're not—they're not lawless, at least not to that extent. I mean, um, so, if surge is denied, then the Section 2A simply cannot be enforced anymore because it, according to the Federal Circuit, is no longer—it's—it's it's not properly part of the Lanham Act. It's unconstitutional. Sure. Um, so. Anyone who is, uh, for some reason, uh, you know, I would imagine if someone were to be uh, offended by the way the PTO handled it thereafter, in other words, if for some reason they were to take a different view and say, well, you know, we're waiting to see if men from Mars will overturn it, I, I don't know, whatever they would come up with, in theory, I would think they might have a Section 1983 action available to them because according to the Federal Circuit, it is a violation of a party's constitutional rights to refuse to register a trademark on the grounds of Section 2A. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I, I mean, I just don't imagine anything like that going down. And we're talking about trademark practice here. Sure. Now, would, would this – I understand that this focuses on the disparaging uh, prong of, of Section 2A, but what about, like, words that are – you know, vulgar or, you know, other types of things. Will, will this also affect that as well? You know, words in, in, in our parlance uh, that make their way into proposed marks? 
Well, as of right now, that's not before the court, and it wasn't decided by the federal circuit. Mm-hmm. The PTO has taken the position in other proceedings that while they disagree with the holding of In Re Tam, they, their position is, they say, that if In Re Tam is good law regarding the disparagement prong, it's also, it's, it's reasoning, they say, would apply equally to the scandalous and offensive and another yes. bar to registration. Um, I do not, this now is not speaking as Simon Tam's lawyer, because right. it's not, it's as far as I understand it, and certainly the way we briefed it, it's not before the court, but as an interested observer, I don't see, frankly, what they're talking about. I don't, I understand, there are different issues. Yeah, sure. First, there is such a thing as obscenity still recognized in law. You know, the the, the issues might be, a court could determine that the issues are the same, but I would not say that there's anything in In Re Tam itself that says that it has determined it. Is the Supreme Court, you know, it's unusual for the Supreme Court, I think, and I'm not an expert on the topic, to go outside of the issues as briefed and say nobody really puts this in front of us, but, you know, the whole Section 8, we think the whole Section 2A should go. Interesting. Well, we'll definitely have to see what what develops there. Just switching gears a little bit, uh, you and I have a particular bit of IP enforcement experience in in common going back a number of years uh, from my days in New York. Uh, but your practice today has come a long way in terms of the clients you represent and the cases you handle uh, from that background. Can you talk about how you've gotten to where you are uh, in terms of developing your practice? Well, you know, um, you're talking about, of course, the firm where you and I both both uh, practiced in New York, uh, one of the fine um, you know, enforcement IP enforcement firms, and I, I won't drag their name into it so because – they just may not want to be associated with me these days. Okay. Uh, but anyone can look it up. Mm-hmm. You and I both both worked at, 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 at almost simultaneous times. Right. Um, but it, it, that was a fantastic experience. And, and what, it, what that did was get me onto a more IP-oriented track than I had previously been on. I'd always been a commercial litigator with a, with a great deal of interest in trademark work. Um, but it wasn't something that was as hot as it is now. So I was always able to get assignments in law firms by approaching the person in charge of giving out the work and say, hey, if something comes in that's got involves you know trademark issue, I've got some experience and some interest in it, and I'd love to work on it. And that in those days was enough to get some great experience, and while also amassing nor a sort a sort of general litigation experience um, that a lot of people who've you know, only ever practiced IP don't necessarily get the opportunity to do. Just doing good old, you know, in, 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 uh, insurance coverage work, toxic torts, uh, business unfair competition stuff. Um, what happened then when I – a few years after I, I left the firm that, that you and I had both uh, practiced at is that um, – I started my own firm for a short time and turned to the internet, which was, you know, not exactly in its infant stages, but was still. This was before the days of, you know, widespread understanding of or impl- implementation of SEO. But because I was on my own now, um, I used the internet as a way to promote my practice, 
and to sort of become a bit of a of an internet guy uh, for for someone you know who is who's in uh, his mid fifties. I'm pretty comfortable with technology, and someone who's not you know that does not have a technical background as such. I really took to the internet as a way to develop business, uh, both in terms of the substantive nature of of understanding how to represent clients who had internet-based businesses and were being <clears throat> threatened or sued by stakeholders, um, the kind of firms, the kind of companies that were typically our clients in the in the old firm, mm-hmm. um, were threatened by online distribution models or on- online forms of competition that they had never experienced before. Uh, people found me on the, on the internet. They liked what they saw. They, they were comfortable <clears throat> with the fact that I had had the sort of experience that we share representing the, the, um, the big boys. And on the other hand, now I was available to, to represent them. I started my blog um, in January of 2005 after getting past the idea that, well, there's already a trademark blog out there. So why would, you know, does it really make any sense to have another blog on trademarks? And I said, oh, you know, I'll do it a little bit differently. Maybe I'll find a way to do it that w- won't be entirely redundant of what Marty Schwimmer's already doing and what Jack Welch is doing. Jack Welch, <laughs> John Welch. Mm-hmm. I would have been very happy to do what Jack Welch was doing at the time also, frankly. <laughs> but I, that invitation didn't come to me. Right. Um, and I did find a niche for the Likelihood of Confusion blog. Um, I had already had a little bit of no notoriety because of my involvement in the Jews for Jesus versus Brodsky um, domain name case in 1998, which was one of the early domain name trademark cases, Yes, um, which was actually before the UDRP and before the, um, you know, before the anti-cyber squatting act. Yes. So, you know, that sort of put me on the map and the blog uh, did, you know, sort of take off. I was an early enough, I was an early enough um, adopter, and I was also um, willing to uh, be risky enough in terms of taking positions and saying things other people wouldn't necessarily say because it was something that I needed for my practice. I I was looking for clients. I was looking for opportunities. It also just was my – you know, I I was on my own, so I I didn't have any institutional – reason not to say exactly what you know what i thought and uh, you know w- once you realize that you know the big brands that you represented when you were in an institutional firm are probably not coming back to you when you're on your own you have a certain freedom and, sure. and that freedom ends up including the opportunity to represent defendants and, you know now i was never interested in representing defendants sometimes i would get a call from someone who was for example caught red-handed um, selling counterfeit stuff, and I say to them, "Listen, there's no defense for you. There's you can, you can keep calling people, and if you want to find someone who will, you know, take your money to to put up some kind of a defense, I'm not that guy because ultimately you're going to lose here. But if you do want someone to help you rep- to help negotiate your way out of, you know, closing down that website and coming to the best possible, uh, you know, terms." I've been on the other side of those deals. I know what I know what those companies are interested in, and I could probably help you. But that, that never became a large part of my practice. What did become a big part of my practice was representing people with online businesses or review sites um, who were basically being sued or threatened with lawsuits by those who used intellectual property laws, usually trademark and copyright, as a 
stalking horse for what was really uh, a, you know an attempt to you know uh, to deal with competition that they were not ready to deal with in terms of you know, online distribution, gray market sales, um, you know, uh, or, or reviews that uh, people didn't necessarily find um, pleasant. Mm-hmm. Ron, we're coming near the end of our interview. I have one final question. You mentioned to me that you now blog a lot less on likelihood of confusion than you did a few years ago. Uh, but as a platform for you, the blog is probably as influential as ever. Uh, what has changed in your approach to blogging, and and what what led you to that change? Well, you know, social media, you know, the, especially Twitter, really has has really changed the landscape. And the sort of I used to post five six times a week or more on likelihood of confu- confusion, but if you go back in time, you'll see a lot of those posts are are one liners. Here's a case you might be interested in where this is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, those are now tweets instead of putting them on the blog. Those are now tweets. And it's much easier to tweet, much faster to tweet. You can build a, a more, you know, a more stable following. Yes. And on the other hand, on the blog, I'm more like, you know, once or twice a month, I will publish a rather in, you know, an in-depth essay, you know, taking a legal issue, taking it apart, you know, doing some commentary on it. And then, you know, once or twice a week, something lighter, something just, you know, here's something somebody said, here's a thought about it. Something a little bit more than than a tweet can can handle. Sure. Um, uh, to make sure that the blog is always fresh, I've got no problem, um, you know, recycling stuff on the blog as long as it's as, as I update it as appropriate, because a lot of it is not time sensitive. But it's a great op. It's still it's still the main platform for my practice. Ron, this has been a great interview. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy practice uh, to chat with us here today on IP Fridays. And uh, thanks again for all of your uh, contributions to date. You're welcome, Ken. Great talking to you again. Take care. All the best. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at IPFridays.com or on iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at IPFridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to IPFridays.com slash iTunes and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only, and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.